Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, patriots, and welcome back for another episode of Abide in Liberty. I'm going to make what's going to seem like a pretty sharp departure from what I've been talking about. Uh, There's been a lot in the news recently about uh, some recent prominent bank closures, what that means for the economy. We've been talking about inflation for months and months and months now. Um, And so I um, actually kind of what inspired me to do this. We had our parent-teacher conferences this week, and while a couple parents were waiting for their turn with a teacher, um, I spent a little time chatting with them, and we started talking about the economy, and um, they had some questions, and (laughs) I kind of went into teacher mode and started explaining some things that I'd learned going through finance and investment classes in college. And I realized, number one, how much I enjoy talking about these things, um, and number two, how um, how a lot of the news could be really confusing and really hard to discern what's real and true if you don't have some of those basics. And, you know, I was fortunate enough that that just so happened to be uh, the area that I studied in college. Um, so I wanted to share some of those basics with you to kind of help decipher why these banks failed, what the big deal is, and what that means uh, for the future of our country, and then tie that back to uh, principles of freedom that we talked about with the 5,000-year leap. So this is going to be a uh, multi-segment, a multi-podcast series. This is not something that uh, there's any way I could do justice to uh, in 20 minutes because I really want to take the time to explain and talk through all the pieces of this and how they work before trying to tie it all together and explain where we are now. And just also, please um, beware that um, even going through this over multiple weeks, I'm just barely scratching the surface of all the variables that come at play. But there are some main components of the macro economy. There are some main components that deal with how the Fed looks at and controls interest rates. And there are some very main components behind um the failure of these banks and the situation that we find ourselves in now. So we're going to focus on those kind of big levers um, and leave some of the more um, less impactful minutiae for academia. Um, Now, to do this, we're going to start by going back to the formation of the Federal Reserve back in 1910 We're going to spend some time there going through that history. We're going to talk about uh, the components of how the Federal Reserve controls interest rates. We'll look at some of the main causes behind the 2008 financial crisis and then trace some of the consequences of that through to where we are today. Um, So first, let's go back a little bit in history to 1910. In 1910, uh, there were several prominent businessmen and, and leaders of banking systems that came together in a secret meeting on Jekyll Island. And uh, this, there's a whole lot of detail, a whole lot of history here, but basically the result of that meeting 
became and rolled its way into the Federal Reserve Act, which was when we as a country established the Federal Reserve as the United States Central Bank. Now, this Federal Reserve was created by Congress through this act. Technically and on paper, it is supposed to be an independent entity. It is not run by elected officials. Um, It is supposedly a private bank, but it's been given this charter to do a couple things. Now, in in theory, it's independent, but as, as anyone uh, would be aware, when, when you've got something that is that closely tied to the government, when the government is what gave you your being, that gave you your charter, there's a lot of um, strings that kind of keep the government and the Federal Reserve very closely linked and um, working together. But so the purpose of establishing the Federal Reserve was... Um, to provide stability, to prevent recessions, and to help facilitate um, payments, to help payments be able to be processed more quickly and allow U.S.-based businesses to quickly do business with other countries and go through the exchange rate process that much quicker. Now, the reason why the uh, Federal Reserve was given the task to uh, promote economic stability and prevent uh, economic downturns is because since the beginning of our nation with the operation of a free market economy, there had been many uh, periods of very quick economic growth followed by recessions, right? There are busts and booms is kind of what they call them. And um, these economic minds in the early 1900s thought if we could somehow keep that from happening. So rather than these big growth cycles followed by recessions, which by the way, overall, if you trace the trajectory of our economic growth, despite these ups and downs, there's a very sharp marked um, upward trend in that movement. And we went from, like I've talked about before, awkward, backwater, rebellious stepchild uh, to the economic power of the world during that time, but still we wanted to do even better. So they thought if we could somehow prevent that and smooth that out, we could avoid all these dips and just kind of, you know, experience this slow, steady economic growth. So if you're any uh, student of history or any student of what happens when uh, government tries to step in and make things better through more centralized planning, which was what the Federal Reserve was intended to do, You'll know, um, you could probably guess anyways, that the cycle of recessions and booms and busts has not stopped. Uh, In fact, shortly after this Federal Reserve Act was passed, we fell into the Great Depression with all of the horrors and terrible things that came with that. Um, And really, it's as independent and objective scholars look at this, it's really unclear whether the Federal Reserve has been successful in its charter to make it better than it was before. There are some who theorize that the intervention of the federal government has not prevented what is a naturally occurring cycle of booms and busts in a similar way that the globe experiences natural cycles of cooling and heating. Many will theorize and have theorized that it's possible that the meddling of the government in the economy in this way has just led to more severe booms and more 
uh, marked and severe recessions. Now, there's only one way to know that for sure, and that would be to get it hop in a time machine, go back in time, and run the other experiment without the Federal Reserve. So we'll never know for sure, but let's just say that um, it's not clear at all that things are any better, and it's possible that that they're worse. All right, so let's jump into the Federal Reserve and its job. The way that the Federal Reserve has sought to keep things stable in the economy is to control the inflation rate. When there's these big upswings, um, you know, you experience an increase in prices and uh, there's an increase in demand for goods. And so you have all lots and lots of economic activity. When you have these recessions and falls, prices fall, demand falls. And so if we can keep, the idea was if we can keep inflation steady and predictable at a very, very low one to 2%, maybe two to 3%, then we'll have a steady stream of demand, a steady stream of supply. We don't have these big swings. So one of the main things that the Federal Reserve is responsible for is keeping inflation at a very small, manageable, predictable one to 2%. But before we can get to today's problem, we all know if anyone has been to the store a couple times in the last year or two, knows very well that inflation is not at a very manageable and predictable and consistent one to 2%. It is many, many times higher than that. But before we get into explaining why that is, let's start with defining what inflation is and what it is that the Federal Reserve does to control inflation and how all that works. So inflation is defined as uh, too many dollars chasing too few goods. So to illustrate this, we're going to create a um, make-believe economy where in this economy, there's very few of us. And there's only one thing that any of us cares about buying or selling, and that is basketballs. So if I'm the maker of basketballs and I have 10 for sale and the total number of dollars out there in the economy for people to buy my basketballs is $100, then each basketball I will sell for $10 each, right? $10 per basketball. There's 10 basketballs, $100 in the economy. That's how the price is set. But if for some reason, you know, myself as the uh, the owner and producer of basketballs and the dictator of Basketballville, I decide to reward my loyal subjects with a stimulus check. And so I send out another $900. I print $900 and divide that up between my subjects. So now instead of $100 in this economy, there's $1,000 in this economy. Well, I still only have 10 basketballs to sell. The same number of goods, nothing has changed. We're going to hold that constant. But now there's $1,000 chasing those 10 basketballs. So all at once, I have everybody show up wanting to buy a basketball. And I have more people wanting to buy my $10 basketball than I have basketballs to sell. So as a an astute and um, as a businessman who's interested in maximizing my income for the support and comfort of my family, I'm going to increase my prices until I find a little bit more of a balance till they're not just falling off, uh, flying off the shelf. So the price of those basketballs, eventually I'll settle on a nice balanced $100 per basketball. $100, 10 basketballs, $1,000 in the economy, and we're back to balance. Um, supply equals demand once again. And we've got a good balance between the number of dollars out in the economy and the number of goods that those dollars are chasing. Now, in reality, 
And in the real world, when this happens and there's more money chasing the same number of goods, people go out, like I just talked about, and want to buy more. And vendors are naturally incentivized to raise their prices until they reach this equilibrium where they're able to sell and people are able to buy at a constant rate. And there's not just a surplus of demand. Or on the flip side, if they decide to raise their prices too much, all of a sudden there aren't enough customers that want to buy them at that higher price. So they will lower their prices until they reach that nice steady equilibrium where product comes in, they're able to sell it and people are buying it and interested in buying it. Now, this doesn't mean that vendors are evil. Um, The root cause that caused this problem in my little make-believe economy is the supply of money. Any rational person, any self-interested business person is going to try to make the best living for themselves and for their family, and they would all do the same type of thing. It is natural. It's it's human nature. And actually, as Adam Smith uh, demonstrates in The Wealth of Nations, it's a good thing. All of us in a free market economy trying to do the best things for us and for our families result in all these decisions being made at an individual level and a balanced economy with supply and demand equal and balanced with each other. So I mentioned before that the Federal Reserves, we're going to call them the Fed from now on, their stated goal is to control inflation at this predictable 1% to 2%. Now, this is a small enough growth in prices that we don't feel a whole lot of pain from that from year to year. And it's also slow enough price growth that companies can keep pace with it. Um, and they can adjust salaries accordingly so that the purchasing power of their employees doesn't evaporate overnight. It doesn't evaporate at all because prices go up. Employers are able to increase salaries to keep in lockstep with it and everybody's happy. So how do they keep inflation at that rate? So there's really three main ways that they do this. In order to explain the first, we have to talk about what bank reserves are and what fractional banking is. So reserves, any bank, um, the the government establishes by law a percentage of their cash that banks are required to keep in their vaults, to keep in reserve. Now, some of them keep it in vaults. A lot of them will keep it in other accounts or with other banks, but um, they have to keep a certain amount of cash on hand at any time so that if you and I walk in to the office and I want to pull $100 out, they've got enough and more to be able to pull that out of the vault and give it to us. Currently, the required reserve amount is 10% for very large banks and then 3% for smaller banks. So they have to keep 10% cash on hand or 3% respectively. Um, Now, the way this works and what that means is the rest of their cash, they're able to give out in loans. So let's go through a very simple banking example. If I, as a depositor, I've got $100, I just got paid doing whatever, selling basketballs, right? I sold all 10 of my basketballs for 10 bucks. Now I'm going to go take that and park that money somewhere. I don't trust, I don't want to stick it under my mattress. Um, You know, I don't want to trust it in my wallet. So I'm going to go put it in this bank. So I'm going to go deposit it with a bank that has a 10% reserve requirement. So I give that money to them. And on their balance sheet, that bank shows that they now have a liability of $100. They owe me that $100. They just don't get to keep it. But what they are allowed to do is they're allowed to take 90% because they have to keep 10% in reserve. 
they can go take 90% of that amount that I've deposited with them and loan it out to you. And let's say you um, you want to take that $90 and you want to go do something else with it. It doesn't really matter, but you get a loan from that bank for $90. Then you take that $90 and you go to your bank and deposit it there. And so now all of a sudden you have $90 to spend. I have $100 to spend. Hypothetically, I should be able to go get that money back out and go spend it on something else. That's still my money. But now you have $90 to go spend on whatever it is you're going to do. You have to pay it back eventually. But what has happened is there's an additional $90 in the economy that was created from this fractional banking system. This fa- The fact that the bank can go and lend your money to someone else that they can go spend on other things. So let's say that person goes and buys a house with that $90. Well, the person who sold them that house takes the $90 goes and deposits in their bank and their bank is required to keep again 10% of that so that's 9 bucks but the other $81 they can go and spend on something else so now they take their $81 yeah so then once they go spend that money and they go buy a car that car dealership takes their $81 goes and deposits it in their bank That bank is required to keep 10% in reserve, which is $8.1, $8.10. And the other, that bank can loan out. So you're creating, every time this happens, you're creating money in the economy out of that $100. So if you, mathematically, the way that it works, if you follow that example all the way through um, to its uh, logical end, a 10% reserve requirement will create 10 times the amount of money that was originally deposited. If every single person along the way takes every cent, deposits it in a bank, and that bank in turn goes and deposits it. But it does create a lot of extra money. So it's the reciprocal. If you know 10% is one-tenth, so a one-tenth reserve requirement will create a 10 times money multiplier. If you have a one-fourth, where one-fourth of all the funds um, that a bank receives, they're required to keep in reserve. They'll be able to go loan the other three fourths and it will create a four times multiplier. So whatever the fractional reserve requirement is, you take the reciprocal of that and that's the money multiplier. That's the amount of additional money that's created, which when I first heard about this blew my mind that money could just be created out of thin air like that, but it is. <laughs> it's kind of nuts um, when you really start to think about it. So that's one way that the federal reserve can manipulate the money supply. If they want to increase the money supply in the economy, they can lower the fractional reserve requirement. So in the case of my $100 with a 10% reserve requirement, there's a 10 times multiplier. So that $100 will create 10 times that amount. So my $100 will create $1,000 in the economy. And let's say that's not enough. We're struggling economically. The Federal Reserve wants to get more money out there. So people have more money to buy things and they want to stimulate the economy, they could drop that reserve requirement to 5%. So that fraction now is 120th of everything they receive, they're required to keep, and the other 1920th they can loan out. So the money multiplier there, the reciprocal of 120th is 20. So my $100 now doesn't create $1,000 in the economy, it creates 20 times 100, which is $2,000. 
And the opposite is true. If they want, if the economy is going too crazy, inflation is going nuts, they want to decrease the money supply. There's too many dollars chasing too few goods and they want to suck that money supply out. They can increase the fractional um, reserve requirement from a 10th to a fourth. So then the money multiplier goes from 10x, 10 times to four times. My $100 instead of creating $1,000 creates only 400. Now, as you can imagine, because not everybody follows that process exactly, it's not exactly completely scientific that everyone goes and takes and deposits it all in their account and the bank loans out exactly 90%. Um, that's a pretty, uh, that's a good lever that they can pull if they want to make big swings, but it's not great for fine-tuning uh, inflation and keeping it a really tight control. So another way, another lever that they can pull is through interest rates. And um, this is related to this fractional banking, but the way that they control interest rates is if, uh, the idea is if interest rates are high, there will be less people who want loans. So you'll have the banks lending less money, which means that, that, um, that money multiplier is dampened. The effect of that is dampened, right? So this is kind of a good fine-tuning um, activity. You got big muscle movements with that fractional reserve amount, and now we can kind of dampen or amplify the effect of that fractional banking as we adjust and kind of tweak these interest rates. So when interest rates are high, people don't want to borrow as much. So not as many people are going to the bank for loans, which means they're not depositing it into other banks and creating more money as a result. Um, and so the money supply will shrink. Um, if not enough, if again, they we want to get more money out into the economy, we can lower the interest rate, which means more people are going to go to the bank wanting loans, which means you've got more money creating more money in these banks as they're deposited and redeposited again uh, using that money multiplier in the fractional banking system. So I hope, hope all that makes sense. If you're falling asleep to this, I apologize. I, I really kind of geek out over this stuff. All right, guys. We're out of time. We're going to have to stop there, but we will pick up next week with the topic of treasury bonds. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at abideinliberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.